0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Holly Goodman, shareholder with Gunster in Southern Florida. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are connecting with one of our members in Oklahoma. Joining us on the program is Adam Childers, director and shareholder at Crow and Dunleavy, And chairman of the firm's Labor and Employment Practice Group. Since the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, commonly known as Title VII, this act became a fixture in private workplaces across the nation. But the same cannot be said for employers in Indian Country. The 7th Osage Nation Congress, however, recently enacted legislation intended to provide Osage Nation employees protection against sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and retaliatory discharge. Our guest recently published an article about the enactment of this new law in Oklahoma Indian country and joins us today to share his insights. Adam, welcome to the program. How are you doing today?
1: Hey there, Holly. I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be back on the podcast, and I'm excited to talk about a really kind of novel and interesting thing that's going on in my neck of the woods out here in Oklahoma.
0: Great. Well, let's let's start with the nuts and bolts question here. Why doesn't Title Seven apply to Indian tribes in Oklahoma?
1: Well, that's a great place to start. Title 7, as we know any employment practitioner, that's kind of one of the most important statutes to have in our kit of employment laws. when it was first enacted, and even with the various iterations and amendments that have come after it, when it comes to the tribes, you know, Native American tribes, they are not defined or do not fall within the definition of a covered employer for purposes of Title VII. They essentially are treated as sovereign nations with their own jurisprudence and codes that they may follow. And for that reason, they were not forced to comply with Title VII, nor were they even defined in a way that would allow them to, if they wanted to, you know, waive that sovereign immunity for certain purposes. So for all intents and purposes, that means since, you know, the mid-60s, And moving forward, as we've seen these many evolutions of sexual harassment law, gender discrimination, and expansion of a lot of those rights for people in the workplace, the same has not been true for those who are employees of the tribes in Indian country.
0: So without a federal law or a state law prohibiting discrimination or harassment in the workplace, what have those tribes been doing to deal with workplace issues?
1: So that's a great follow-up because immediately your mind kind of goes to well, then what safety net is there for these individuals? And surely they haven't been operating without any safety net at all. I would say that by and large, what has happened is that the tribes have usually used a network, a patchwork quilt of policies and procedures, kind of things that we're used to seeing in employee handbooks to govern what you can and cannot do in the workplace. Again, there's no force of law behind it, but at least there is a set of expectations And in most instances, consequences that can happen for failure to follow those policies and procedures. But of course, the consequences are most usually, at the most extreme, the loss of a job without opportunity for remedy to the individual who may have been harassed or discriminated against or retaliated against. And so you can see that it's kind of Half the job is done when we rely on those policies and procedures, but that's largely what the tribes have done and and modeled some of those internal rules after Title VII. But again, without the teeth that comes with a statute that you know lines out what those remedies might be.
0: So, if they've had policies and procedures that have addressed discrimination and harassment, what led Osage Nation to break from that tradition and to turn to legislation to address discrimination and harassment in the workplace?
1: So, the Osage Nation the 7th Congress of that tribe here in Oklahoma, they're right there on the vanguard of this movement. And there's been a lot of questions about what motivated it. The more cynical, but perhaps more realistic approach as to why this happened, there was some reporting that had been going on in the last few years about a pretty serious claim of sexual harassment by an individual working for the tribe that although that individual made their complaints known, they were almost immediately discharged. There were a lot of questions about what was going on and, and some outcry within the tribe members. And personally, I think that did play some part in it. But I'd be remiss if I sort of just said, well, it's just this one incident. Really, this is a movement, the, the Me Too movement a few years ago, and then just the expansive scope of Title VII when you take into account the sexual orientation and gender identity has now been endorsed as a means of discrimination under Title VII by the United States Supreme Court. I think you've got all this stuff happening And I think there's a lot of introspection by everyone and that included the tribes. And that meant that some people were looking around saying, you know, not only are we behind the times, but we're going to be left forever behind if we don't take immediate steps to address it. So I think the Osage Nation is the first of the inevitable dominoes that have to happen to address a problem that is in every workplace, private, public, and within these sovereign nations. But I think they realized something's got to change.
0: So then, with the law that the Osage Nation passed, how does its protections compare to that of Title VII?
1: So it's a fascinating read, Holly. I sat down and, and took their law and read through it, and I kind of expected just you know reams and reams of paper to have been consumed by the writing of this bill. It's actually about a page and a half, and it is very sparse in specific details. It does have some of the traditional hallmarks of a sexual harassment law in that it describes and defines what a you know a hostile work environment can consist of. It's not as expansive as Title Seven, and it makes no mention of some of the categories that I just spoke about, gender, identity, sexual orientation, or even in some instances, things national origin, race. It really is a focus on gender discrimination, retaliation, and a hostile work environment. There's no talk about quid pro quo, sexual harassment and there's no penalty phase. There's no remedies that are outlined. They do waive sovereign immunity to the extent necessary to allow for those cases to proceed in tribal court. But I think that's where we're going to see some interesting developments in the years to come as they begin to define within their own common law what those terms mean, how expansive they can be, and most importantly, what remedies, if any, will be fashioned using other parts other existing parts of their tribal law in order to enforce, implement, and ultimately, you know, understand what that law stands for. So there's some big departures from Title VII. I would say they took kind of the the bare bones of it, and then around it, they're going to use common law to kind of fill in the gaps. And as that happens, I think, you know, tribes all across the United States are going to be watching to see how that plays out as they probably begin to contemplate similar changes within their their own codes of justice.
0: So then what are going to be the implications for employers or tribal employers? And then I think as a follow-up to that, equally as interesting to me, is what I imagine are third-party employers who have businesses in Indian country and who employ tribal employees. What are the implications for those employers?
1: Yeah, I'll take that the way you bifurcated the questions. I think they're two really important areas. So first, for those employees of the tribe themselves, I think the immediate changes are that there'll need to be changes to policies and procedures that better track what the statutory language of this act call for. I think they're going to have to start training managers on how to identify, investigate, and address sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and retaliation claims. I think there's going to need to be training generally for all the employees. So they better understand their rights and obligations. I think they're going to need to make decisions about creating avenues for these types of complaints to be brought, whether that's a hotline or a creation of a human resources department or enhancing or amplifying existing departments to make sure that they can keep up with you know what may be, particularly in the beginning, a fair number of claims where people are sort of testing out the waters and figuring out what this all means. And that's, that's an area that I'm excited to see what happens in the wake of the McGurk case. There's already a lot of changes going on within tribal law across the state. And this is just going to be another one that they throw into the mix. So that's part one of your question. Part two, I'm really fascinated by, which is what happens when you've got, you know, there are third party employers that are on reservation lands in Indian country, as it's kind of a term of art. And, you know, they could have employees that are not members of the tribe, then they could have members of the tribe? And will those members of the tribe get the benefits of their law on their land, albeit in a private enterprise brought into the Indian country? I suspect that they'll be afforded the rights under their law because I think one of the restrictions placed on many of these outside companies that get to work within an Indian country is to acquiesce to Indian law within that jurisdiction. And although it's not explicitly laid out in this particular act, there are in almost every one of the other, in fact, probably all of the tribes have specific laws tied to that very issue because this issue of sovereign immunity is right at the top of the list, the most important things and with good reason for the tribes. So I, I think we're going to see third parties that are going to have to get educated on a law that is not one that they're accustomed to. And maybe they'll look at it and say, we're already achieving level X, which is compliance with Title VII. This is a lesser standard. But word of caution there, with each passing day and decisions put out by tribal courts, I think you're going to need someone monitoring and helping to understand what you have to do to comply. And if those who do not comply, if you might lose your ability to do your work in Indian country, which... It's a lucrative place to be these days. So private companies and tribal employers are going to really have to watch their P's and Q's. I think that's the takeaway there.
0: It's a really interesting concept, this idea of the jurisdiction and how that is going to work in connection with this new law. And you mentioned the McGirt case. The U.S. Supreme Court decision in the McGirt case has created a lot of discussion and, depending on who you ask, quite a bit of confusion and uncertainty about the rights of the state of Oklahoma and the federal government to exercise jurisdiction over reservation lands. So does the McGirt case have any impact on sexual harassment law in the tribal workplace?
1: Yeah, this is another one that I'm really fascinated by, at the risk of giving too much explanation, but just for the listeners who are thinking, well, now, who's this McGirt guy? Well, so Jim C. McGirt was an individual who was an Indian, and he was arrested, forced, and convicted of some really terrible, heinous crimes on appeal before the U.S. Supreme Court and a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that all the reservations in Oklahoma that we long had believed had been disassociated or were no longer established, that they actually had not been. And they were still in their full capacity, meaning that if you were a Native American who was arrested for a crime in Indian country, you have to be tried by either a tribal court or by a federal court, meaning all the state law convictions including Mr. McGurts that did not comply with that were suddenly undone. And we're just coming up to the two-year anniversary of the McGirtz case being decided. And it had a ripple effect, right? Now there's fights over whether or not taxes could have been levied by the state. There's questions about mineral rights and rights of way. And so the fight continues. Our state attorney general has filed numerous, numerous cases that are still pending, trying every avenue that they can to overturn McGurk, or at least do something to address all these multiple problems in the eyes of many that have stemmed from it. And so my mind immediately went to where you just went with that question, which is, you know, the McGurk case. How will that play out here? I think that it will have somewhat of an impact, but remember that Title VII is a federal law. And so, unless that sovereign immunity was waived, which has not happened in any of the tribes, they were not going to be able to use those laws. They have waived sovereign immunity, but on a very limited basis and only for their own code and only for their own act and not for the use of Title VII or any state law. So I think right now it shouldn't call into question McGurk, but now I'm watching the other tribes to see, do they create their own laws or do they say, we'd like to partake a little bit of Title VII by using McGurt as our guide? So I guess stay tuned. Right now, it has not become a factor But I'm not convinced that it won't be by the end of all this.
0: And you just mentioned there the idea of other tribes. Do you think that this is going to be a trend among other tribes? And if so, do you think that that could span across state lines to other states within Indian country?
1: I really do. I I think this is, I think I mentioned earlier, kind of the first domino. I don't see how other tribes, with some of the pressures that they are receiving from their own citizens and outside pressure, you know, questioning you know, how can you have, you know, a safe and healthy workplace if there's not a mechanism by which individuals who are grieved can have some protection under the law, not just under policies and procedures, but under your actual law of the people of your sovereign nation. And so I think this is a little bit just kind of crystal ball gazing by myself here, but I do think you're going to see others watching to see how the Osage Nation law goes. What kinds of decisions are coming out of it? And then if things seem to be going well, not just here in the state of Oklahoma, where we have a bunch of tribes that are watching, I think from coast to coast, you'll see others that will engage in similar activity, which means this isn't just an Oklahoma issue. I think it's really for any jurisdiction in the United States that has Indian country within it, I would keep an eye on it because it's going to have an impact on a lot of sectors of different industries and perhaps employers that are listening in right now to this podcast.
0: So with that in mind, then, what is your advice for employers that are doing business in Indian country? What should they be doing to prepare for changes like those that are taking place in the Osage Nation?
1: So I think first thing they need to do is be vigilant and find a good resource for monitoring these developments. I strongly encourage, you know, if you've got outside employment council that you know, you check in with them, make sure that if they've got client advisories or other information that goes out that you get signed up for those, that you can get these kind of information It's not always widely disseminated. Two, I think they need to start looking at what their current policies and procedures are, see how well they track what the tribal policies and procedures are, and start asking, should we bolster it? Should we have a review done so that when, you know, a change like this comes, we're already ahead of the game? Is it good for us from a public relations standpoint, to kind of already lead by example, even if we're not compelled to do so. So I think some of this is equal parts business strategy and decision making, but also just getting ahead of the curve when it comes to what the legal ramifications will be, and not being caught flat-footed and have other businesses get ahead while you're kind of still stuck in the mud. So I don't know that it calls for wholesale changes just yet, But I don't think you want to have that discussion for the very first time as an employer in Indian country after those changes have already made when you have a real opportunity right now to kind of learn what's going on in your jurisdiction and be prepared for it. I think that's great advice. Well, I appreciate that. You know, our firm, we have a Indian law and gaming practice group that they closely monitor these issues. And we have a collaboration with them at the chair of our labor and employment group. And we try to look out for one another on those types of issues. And I think you're just finding this is really prevalent right now, these legal issues that kind of pull different areas together where you can kind of combine on best practices and really take care of your clients, you know, and the business community at the same time. And I think that's a great takeaway from all of this is the kind of the synergies that exist there for us to be looking out for our client base. So we're excited to be monitoring it and helping to make a difference in Indian country. And I hope those who've listened in today take away a few lessons that will be helpful for them too.
0: Well, this has been a very interesting discussion and we look forward to learning more from you about this new law and its effect on employment matters in the Oklahoma Indian region. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. Appreciate you. If you would like to connect with Adam, please click on his bio in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. We invite you to search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Holly Goodman, and thanks for listening.